Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 273 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. And we've got some pretty exciting news this week, so stay tuned. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses, an awesome supportive community, and a whole heap of fantastic things. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaman Cipher book series. How are you, Al? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be honest with you, Val, I'm actually somewhat bemused. Why? Well, because I found myself on a surfboard yesterday. Oh, yes. (laughs) So. When you told me this, (laughs) I I think it's great. I think it's awesome. (laughs) I know. It's one of those things, isn't it? I said to people, I'm going for a surfing lesson and everyone just went, you what? Like what? <laughs> because you know, anyone who's ever met me will, um, or seen me, in fact, will know that um, beach beaches and me don't actually go together that well. Um, mm. I have uh, very fair, freckly skin yeah. and red hair, and uh, so you know, most of my life has actually been spent avoiding spending too much time at the beach because otherwise, I end up with third degree burns, and I'm all crispy. Um, so anyway, yeah. So I found myself out on a surfboard yesterday in a wetsuit doing the whole thing. And the reason that this happened, and I think this is actually quite an important moment, because I have this friend, and she's wonderful. She's a very enthusiastic, spontaneous, amazing person. I mean, how we became friends, I have no idea, because, you know, enthusiasm and spontaneity are not two words that would generally be associated with me. But I think it's really important for people like me who have, you know, like a fairly routine-based, you know, like nothing gets done if I don't have a routine. So I'm, mm. I'm quite routine-based. And um, I think it's really important for people like me to have friends like her because she makes me do stuff. Like when I say makes me, but she encourages me to do stuff that I wouldn't normally do. Mm. And because I like her so much and because I don't like to say no all the time because, you know, often she'll be like, let's do this. Oh, that'd be ridiculous. Um, this time she was sitting there, we were having coffee and we were, and she was kind of like, I think I'd really like to go and try a surfing lesson. You know, who mm. wants to come with me? And there's like 20 people sitting there and everyone just looked at her like really because it's not, what again, not what you call necessarily. Like you either know how to surf in this group mm. of people or you're never going to do it in your life. Mm. Um, and so she kind of looked really quite sad and so, of course, I went, you know what, I'll go with you. And I think it's partly just that whole thing of thinking to myself. I, I started out this year thinking to myself, my last year was really work-based. Like I wrote three manuscripts last year. I did a lot of school visits. I did all those sorts of things. I had the trip to Canada, which was amazing, but that was kind of it, you know, outside of that. It was a very, very disciplined kind of year. Mm. And so I kind of thought to myself this year, I thought I'm going to, I need to say yes to things a bit more often because my default position is no, I have to work. And I, I just realized that I'm actually a bit, I'm a bit in a rut with that. And so I decided that I'm going to try and say yes to stuff more often. And I'm saying yes to things that scare me as well, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, in a little while. But, um, you know, this was just something. So anyway, I went, I, I surfed with an enormous amount of help from my lovely surfing instructor, Rusty, <laughs> from Gerringong Surf School, not sponsored, great guy, <laughs> um, who hauled me up by like literally by the wetsuit. He got me up on the board, standing on the board, and I sur- I actually did surf for let's say 10 seconds and, you know, it was really quite amazing. And so I, yeah, I 
So that's what I did. So I'm bemused because, you know. Wow, that's pretty cool. You should be bemused more often. Maybe take yourself out on a creative date (laughs) every week. Maybe I should do that. every two weeks even. I've got this friend who tells me to do that (laughs) stuff. I should probably do that. But you know what I will say also? I am so sore today. Surfing is really hard work. Mm. Really hard work. Yes, I I can imagine. I can imagine. (laughs) You should do it more often. I reckon next week we want to hear about the next instalment, like surfing part two. It'll be like Big Wednesday. Or, or blue crash, blue crash, <laughs> blue crash, more like it. <laughs> All right, what have you been doing, Val? Tell us about your tell, tell us about your week. I have not been surfing. I am taking myself out on a creative date though this weekend. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. actually going to the studios of Wendy Sharp and Bernard Ollis. So mm-hmm. Wendy Sharp has been in the Archibald like a billion times. Mm-hmm. Bernard Ollis is her husband. They share a studio and he used to be the head of the National Arts School. And so I'm going to spend the day there. So that Ooh, is going to be very exciting. interesting. Yeah. And I'm going to be feeling terribly inadequate at, you know, in the presence of such talent kind of thing. So it's going to be, yeah. But we've got exciting news before we forget. Oh, my goodness. Haven't we, Al? We've got exciting news, you and I. We do. We do. Am I going to say it? You can say it. it. Go on. You want me to say it? Okay. So, everyone, we're very excited because hashtag Val and Al (laughs) are going going to Vivid. We're going to be at Vivid Sydney this year. We are going to be hosting, we'll put it this way, we're doing So You Want to Be a Writer, da-da-da, the event, da-da-da, which is going to be so exciting and a little bit, you know, yep, that was one of those things that I said, you know, I had this friend who said to me, we should totally do this. And I went, okay. <laughs> so maybe you would like to share with our fantastic um, community what uh, what they can expect to see at All right. Valinal, the event. <laughs> hashtag Valinal. Uh, so we are one of the official events at Vivid Sydney and that is pretty exciting because mm. um, there's all sorts of great events at Vivid. And uh, we're going to be having So You Want to Be a Writer live at the Museum of Contemporary Art on the 8th of June. Yes, very cool. It's a great space, fantastic view. It's on the top floor of the MCA in Sydney. Uh, It's going to be on the 8th of June from 11am to 1pm and Mm. you can get tickets. So make sure that you do. Just go to the vividsydney.com website and – and, and search for So You Want to Be a Writer in the Ideas section. We'll also put a link in the show notes, of course, which you can find at soyouwanttobearawriter.com.au. But it's going to be fantastic because not only uh, is our community going to be there, so it's be it'll be a wonderful opportunity. Come and meet finally, each other. Yeah, meet each other. It You know, you've all connected in the Facebook group. If you're not already in the Facebook group, just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. So please do come and meet each other. We're going to be recording an episode live along with award-winning authors, Candace Fox, who is an incredible crime and thriller author who has been hitting the New York Times bestseller list, particularly with her books that she's co-written with James Patterson. 
And also Pamela Freeman, who writes under the name of Pamela Hart as well, who has published over 30 books from picture books to um, fantasy to historical fiction. And she's just going from strength to strength as well. And so they're going to be sharing their expert advice. You're going to have Q&A, make sure you bring your notebooks, and it's just going to be a lot of fun. And we're trying to figure out a an after party. <laughs> oh, an after party. But, How exciting. You At know, 1 p.m. A, in the afternoon. <laughs> it's a bit hard for 100, I mean 200 people <laughs> in the middle of the somewhere. city. But, um, you know, for anyone who was, wants to join us. But please do come for the event. It's so great to be part of Vivid Sydney, which, of course, is a fantastic festival in Sydney um, every year. And we would love to see you all. So We would. Most Make assuredly. sure you come. It'd be come so and ask those questions fun. you want to ask us. We're ready for you. Yes, that's right. So ready, in fact. So ready. <laughs> so ready. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to a useful link this week, which is from the Right Life. And I thought that this was pretty interesting. You shared it with us, Al. It's called Double Your Freelance Writing Income, Five Ways to Make It Happen. Now, this is obviously more for people who are freelance writers, who are copywriters uh, and content writers who have clients, more so than those people who are freelance writers who pitch to editors at um, you know, at, at publications, who of course are your clients too, but this is when you more have clients who are businesses or um, people who are hiring you for some reason as, as a copywriter. And there's a bunch of um, great tips there. First is stop and analyze, which I think is a good one because sometimes we can get on the hamster wheel and we can forget to see, oh, actually that particular type of gig is taking me, you know, 20 hours a week but only generating 20% of my income. But that particular kind of gig only takes me three hours and generates a very healthy return. So sometimes we can get stuck in just doing the work that we don't get time to analyse. Mm. Is that, I mean, don't you think that that's a good piece of advice, Al? Oh, it's a really good piece of advice. I remember um, when I was, you know, doing, um, you know, 100% freelance writing across a whole range of different areas, I used to have this one, you know, this one thing that I was doing that used to take an enormous amount of my time and I used to whinge and carry on to my friends about this thing all the time. Mm. And I had this friend just say to me one day, Al, what are you doing? Like, have a look at what you're doing. You are spending this, you know, this many hours a week whinging about this. It takes mm. you forever. You get, you have this client that, mm-hmm. that, you know, wants to, you know, change everything. You know, you're doing 15 sets of changes all the time. You don't need to be doing this. You should be doing X, Y, and Z. And it wasn't until I actually stopped and really analysed how much of it I was doing. Sometimes it does take someone else to help you with that too. Yeah. It's just to go, this is what you're talking about constantly. Stop. You know, yeah, you sometimes absolutely. need that. Um, and so then I did a, a real, I had a real look at what I was doing and how much time I was actually spending. Because that's something that you don't do as a freelance writer either. You don't necessarily really realise, and I'm not just talking about the writing because, you know, I know how long it takes me to write X number of words. So it wasn't that so much, but it was all of the other things that went with that, you know, one hour of writing. How much time was I spending talking to this person? How much back and forwards Mm. was there? How many times was I taking in changes? You know, because every single time it went up the line, there were more changes. And I hadn't 
because I hadn't analysed it, I didn't realise that. And so when I was quoting jobs with these people, I wasn't taking that into consideration and yeah. I needed and I needed to stop. So I actually, it's really hard as a freelance writer to just go, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore because, of course, there's always that notion that where's the next job going to come from if I do mm. that. But, you know, when I left that, it opened up 20 hours a week for me to yeah. be doing other and better work and that's what I ended up doing. So I think it's... It is really important, you know, they, they say here, you know, you know, to, to take that time to work on your business instead mm. of just in your business. And I think that that is something that freelance writers really, really need to think about. I had this client once who um, you would send in copy and they would want, say, a full stop or a comma somewhere, let's say a comma in a sentence, mm. and they would ins- they would communicate that back to you via email mm. and say please put uh, even though they had the document and they were about to use that document in something they insisted on you inserting the comma in a brand new word document and sending it back to them even though that's yes. the only change it's yeah. bizarre what some clients want extraordinary mm. uh so yeah that was weird Thankfully, well, that particular client was actually um, a staff member at that particular organisation and thankfully she left mm-hmm. um, shortly thereafter because that was just a silly waste of time. Anyway, um, another tip that's related, it says drop the biggest loser as in, you know, you might have – because the thing is some things might take you a lot of time but they're not terrible clients. They're just – you just maybe haven't priced yourself correctly or mm. or they're, they're nice people but you've misunderstood how you've spent your time. But some clients are not great to deal with and so, mm. yeah, save yourself for a better client. Mm. Um, another thing they say is create or strengthen your inbound funnel. Now, this is the thing that's really important is that I remember being um, seeing this one particular lady in a freelance forum that I was in complained that her client of 10 years or whatever was decided to go into a different direction. And of course, that's their prerogative. They're not obliged to look after your well-being or your income in any way. But what she hadn't done was create a funnel or create any, you know, mechanism that she would be attracting new clients. So that's really important, particularly if you to, to make sure that you have that backup there and you have uh, clients who are ready to or potential clients who are ready to become clients in case some of your existing clients drop off. Well, that's the thing too. I think, you know, um, not becoming complacent yeah. is also something that is really important. Like I, it's, it's, that, it's a very difficult balance sometimes freelance writing of, of you know, keeping those great clients that you already have um, happy but always sort of you need to be open to other things because you can be you can be like well you know I've got these three clients and they and they cover all my needs and I, I don't have any more time and and there's my year done because if one of those clients drops off that's a massive hole in your income right there mm-hmm. so you have to always be considering what your next move might be just in case like you know you just you can't become complacent with anything when you're freelancing I don't think absolutely 
Um, the next one they say is I identify ideal clients. So I think that's really important is just to make sure, okay, don't just take anything that comes in. I mean, you can when you're first starting out potentially if you mm. need to do it for the money, but otherwise identify the type of client, maybe the industry if you're interested in a particular industry or if you only want large organizations or if you only want small organizations, whatever, and and go for those and tell people, oh, well, I my ideal client is so-and-so. Uh, because then people know when they should gravitate to you or not mm. and the right people will gravitate to you. But also, finally, raise your rates, which is an interesting one that people often find awkward or find mm. resistance to. So I'm not talking so much about your rates when you're dealing with editors at publications, but when you're uh, doing copywriting for corporations, that's something that you should consider if, in fact, you haven't raised your rates in a while. So that's, um, that's definitely a good one. I, there's also, um, a situation I've had in the past where I wasn't necessarily comfortable to raise my rates, but I knew that it was taking me too long in certain circumstances to do a particular kind of work. But I did identify that the areas where it was taking me too long was when I was dealing with a particular person at that client. Everyone else I dealt with, it, it, did, it was not time-consuming. It was really normal. And so I said to my contact, okay, this is my rate. You know, it's the normal rate. It hasn't gone up. But if I deal with John Smith, it's double the rate because it actually takes me double the time <laughs> dealing with him. And they were okay with that. They just oh. never, They just <laughs> made sure that John Smith never dealt with me. But that's fantastic because, because then it didn't take me double the time. <laughs> <laughs> right that's a fairly clear message you're sending them right there <laughs> yeah but they they obviously kind of understood you, that they obviously yeah knew John they're Smith obviously having the same problem with John Smith in, <laughs> internally as externally yeah fair enough but it worked out quite well anyway so that's uh that's from the right life and we will put the link in the show notes now, also, we wanted to tell you about another exciting thing, which is a new online course in writing dialogue, and it's launching very soon. It's such an awesome course. I've gone through it myself, every single word. So good dialogue is at the heart of great novels, and when it's done well, it advances the action, defines characters, and entertains the reader. Some people have an ear for it, but the basic principles of good dialogue can be learnt if you don't have an ear for it. And that's what this online self-paced course is all about. So you can do it in your own time. In this course, you'll transform your understanding of the dialogue writing process and have new skills that will last you forever. And I think that dialogue is such an important thing because I often read manuscripts where I just go, they wouldn't have said that, or that's just not realistic. And it's very important to understand how to make sure that your dialogue is right. So register your interest so that you can be notifi notified the minute the course goes live because you will be rewarded if you are on the There's a prize. list. So go to writercenter.com.au slash dialogue. That's writercenter.com.au slash dialogue. Now, congratulations to all of the winners. Well, not all the winners to the one winner, but all of the writers. 
who took part in Furious Fiction for March. The Mm. challenge was to write a story of 500 words or fewer using the picture we provided to inspire your setting and the theme of curiosity. So we received more than 940 entries. Congratulations to our winner and shortlisted writers. And you can read their stories at furiousfiction.com.au. So we're back for another round of storytelling fun on the 5th of April. So that would be Friday, the 5th of April. And that's another chance to write a short story in under 55 hours following the creative criteria that we'll give you on the 5th of April. And you could be a lucky, the lucky winner and score $500. And that's a cash prize. Uh, well, it's a bank transfer prize, really. But you know, um, so make <laughs> sure you quite s- a <laughs> <laughs> make sure you signed up to the fan club so you don't miss the announcement. So you can do that at furiousfiction.com.au. Yeah, it's not as exciting, is it? To, you, you can win a bank transfer. <laughs> you can win a bank transfer. <laughs> All right, our competition this week, we have a mixed genre three-book pack featuring some fantastic writers, Close to Home by Alice Pung, Sisters and Brothers by Fiona Palmer, and Something in the Water by Catherine Stedman. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. That's writercenter.com.au slash win in order to enter and entries close on the 25th of March. Now, ow. I'm braced. Are you ready for the word of the week? I'm so ready, Val. This is so cool. This word is so cool. Okay. It's colporteur. So (laughs) C-O-L. Seriously. Yes, seriously. It was a cool song. Yeah, no. So you spell it, it's one word, you spell it C-O-L-P-O-R-T-E-U-R, Cole Porter. Mm. Now, it might sound like we're trying to say Cole Porter in a French accent. (laughs) Sorry, could you just say that again, just so that our American listeners get to hear the full joy of that name with the Aussie accent. Carl Porter. Carl Porter. He really rocks that Carl Porter. Yeah, Carl Porter uh, with a French accent, uh, accent, referring, of course, to the composer of musicals such as Kiss Me Kate and Anything Goes, but we're not. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, a Carl Porter is actually someone employed to travel about distributing Bibles, religious tracts, and so on. You're hmm. joking. At a gratuitous, at, sorry, gratuitously or at a low price. There's a word for that. Yeah, there's okay, a word for that. Okay, you got me. That. I'm in. This week I am in. That is oh a good Oh, my God. <laughs> I had no idea that there could be a word for that except yeah. for, you know, other words, which we won't mention. But really, that's incredible. Yeah. So next time they come knocking at the door oh, and what? making your dog's go go crazy. Can you hear my dog barking now? There's possibly one right here right now. (laughs) Well, you can go up to them, to the door and say, hello, you're a Cole Porter. And will they they burst into song though? I mean, you know, because that was what I would do if you said that Hello, my name is Elder Price. (laughs) 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 And I would like to share with you the most amazing book. That's not a Cole Porter song. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. But they All are right. Cole Porters. Okay, good. Yes. All right. Lovely. Let's move I'm on. So glad we, I'm so glad we had this talk. 
Can I just say, this is a momentous occasion, everyone, because Alison was excited about my word of the week. I'm just gobsmacked that there is a word for that. (laughs) You've actually got me with that one. Of all the words, you've got me with Cole Porter. (laughs) There you go. There you go. I knew I'd do it one day. I knew I'd crack up. Yes. (laughs) (sighs) Well, you know, I'm cracked for now. I'm going to be like, you know those H&R Block ads where they go, yes, like that when they're Built in a tax return. That's going to be me today. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I had to laugh though. So we put the announcement about the "So You Want to Be a Writer" Vivid event in the Facebook group yesterday, mm. and the response was hilarious. <laughs> are we all allowed to shout at once? How are you, Al? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> are you ready for the word of the week? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And yes, the answer is yes. We shall all be doing that in unison. Oh, all right, it's like a viewing of the Rocky Horror Show. Anyway, <laughs> keep going. Well, you should bring your feather boa. I am not bringing my feather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll bring one. Bring one for you then. All right, we're going to move on to our writer in residence this week. This is really cool. Had a great chat with Karen Vigors, who has written several books, including The Stranding, The Lightkeeper's Wife, and The Grass Castle but her most recent novel is The Orchardist's Daughter. Now, Karen uh, has got so so many interesting things to say about the writing process and is a super successful author. I mean, The Lightkeeper's Wife have sold some ridiculous number of heaps I think heaps is the word around the world world like in its in its first month in France alone it sold a hundred thousand copies just in its first month in one country so it's a yeah it's a runaway success and yeah like her latest novel is The Orchardist's Daughter and let's have a listen to Karen. Karen, congratulations on your latest book, The Orchardist's Daughter. For those readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell them what it's about? Yes, it's a story about three outsiders who are struggling to belong in a small Tasmanian timber town, a national parks ranger, a young woman who's being strictly controlled by her brother, and a 10-year-old boy being bullied at school. It's set in the tall, old-growth eucalypt forests of southern Tasmania and the vast rugged mountains around there, and it's about trees and secrets, friendship, oppression, and finding the strength to break free. That gives you a little outline. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a real sense of place with this novel and you've chosen to set it, as you've said, in Tasmania. Uh, Why? (laughs) Well, I have long um, passionate connections with Tasmania stemming back to a good 20 years ago when I went down twice to Antarctica from Hobart and uh, before going to South as a volunteer vet working on seals in the pack ice and afterwards, I spent quite a bit of time in Hobart So, and I have some strong friendships down there. Uh, I love Mount Wellington. I've spent a lot of time walking uh, in Tasmania, hiking, that natural environment really speaks to me. I'm a person whose whole psyche is embedded in nature and, and in wild places. And uh, I love the, the history, the fascinating history uh, of Tasmania and the beautiful light, the long sort of grey light. I, I don't mind bad weather. Uh, not that it's bad weather all the time. It was obviously not the other day when it was very hot. But um, yeah, I, I, there's very much that I love about Tasmania and I love to go back there. You obviously don't mind being cold either. Well, look, I think if you wear appropriate clothing, it's really not an issue. So I'd rather be cold and rug up than be hot and try to cool down. So 
tell us about how the idea for this book forms, the premise of this and, you know, the, the themes. What did you, what formed in your head first that you were going to explore certain themes or you had an idea for the story? Well, there were certain themes that I wanted to uh, explore, which were belonging, really, and how loneliness develops if we feel like outsiders. And I think at various stages of our lives, we all have a sense of being an outsider. And we work through those things usually and find a way to fit in. Or later, as we get older, it doesn't seem to matter as much. We can accept ourselves as we are and, and be gregarious at times and not at others and not worry about it. But I'm currently on the journey of shepherding my own teenage children through to adult Adulthood. And I can see it's quite an issue try, for them trying to work out who they are and where they fit and how they belong and how to break from those ties of family and, and how to define themselves. And so um, these were themes that I wanted to explore in this novel and I chose to centre it around young people in a small town. Firstly, young people, because as I've said, I think it's quite hard for them, harder for them often than adults to, to find that sense of belonging. Mm. And secondly, because I think a small community offers you the opportunity to study human behaviour and human psyche um, with a, a really you know, close lens. In cities, there's a, there's a certain degree of dilution when there's troubles that arise. You know, in cities, people often don't know that, that somebody's in trouble or, or having a struggle. But in a smaller community where everybody knows each other, it's harder to hide away from those things. And I wanted to ask, you know, if somebody's suffering from some sort of domestic abuse, not necessarily physical in this novel, I wanted to shine a light more on uh, other types of more subtle types of abuse like psychological um, oppression and bullying. If that's happening to somebody in a country town, whose responsibility is it to reach out? What does it take for us to offer assistance to people in those circumstances? Or do we ignore because it's more uncomfortable because we know people? So these are mm. things I wanted to explore. And one of the things about that is the characterizations in this book. Can you talk a little bit uh, as to how you developed the main characters in terms of did you let them unfold on the page as you wrote or did you you know really flesh them out in your brain before putting pen to paper so to speak I think it's a little bit of both, Valerie. One of the main protagonists, who's the orchardist daughter herself, is Michaela, Mickey, who's brought up isolated and homeschooled on an orchard in Tasmania. And the idea for her came from having observed some friends of mine who I hadn't seen for many years, who'd had elected to homeschool their children for reasons of trying to protect them from the world. And then they layered religion over that. And mm -hmm. when I met these children, they were Tina in their late teens, not quite to the you know the 18 independence but you could sense their desperation to engage with the world and to go out there and make friends like they had no friends other than their immediate family and i wanted to give voice to that that restrictive life that they'd been experiencing and try to put myself in their headspace and think about what they might want to say and what they would like what they'd like from the world the ways they wanted to engage from the world so that came first and mm. then um, the character of Leon who emerged in the lightkeeper's wife as a fully formed character with a strong voice I wanted to take him leaving his his home environment where he had stayed to protect his mother mm. and moving to a country town where 
where a parks ranger is not welcome uh, because most of the community are loggers and to see the ways in which he might try to fit in. But Valeria wanted this to be a positive book, a book of hope. Mm. So it's really a story of the, the ways in which each of those characters finds to be powerful and take steps towards acceptance and belonging. Mm. So you mentioned that you were a vet. So you were, you were a wildlife veterinarian. I'd rather just say vet, like a vet. And, um, but you have written hit after hit after hit in terms of um, your novels. Can you just take us back to when you were being a vet and you thought, oh, I might write a novel now? <laughs> How did that happen? Well, Valerie, I still work um, part-time as a vet. I think that's really important to keep me in touch with the real world and it, it stimulates a different, the diagnostic and decision-making side of my brain. And it keeps me in touch with humans and humanity mm-hmm. and and observing that important animal-human bond or human-animal bond that mm-hmm. I explore in each of my novels. Um, so I was also working, I did a PhD in wildlife health and I have worked continuing just to a small degree um, in recent times as a wildlife vet supporting other scientists in their field research. And what I like to do is work with animals in their natural habitat. I had the option to become a zoo vet, but that's not where I wanted to work. I wanted to see animals where they belonged and help scientists to further their understanding of those animals. And so, you know, it was really around that life-changing time when you have a young family and and it was difficult for me to compete as a a female scientist working part-time. And so at that point, I'd always loved writing and had always wanted to write novels. And my husband said, well, why don't you, this always makes me laugh, why don't you work part-time as a vet, look after the family and write in your spare time? Because you've got so much time to do all of that because looking after your family doesn't take much time at all. Oh, exactly. <laughs> but so what I normally do these days is I write four days a week um, just within school hours and um, and then – I work a day, a big long day as a veterinarian in domestic animal practice. I look after the Governor General's kangaroos and look and <laughs> keep, keep them healthy. Uh, from um, a few times a year, I go in and take care of them, and um, and then I if I get the opportunity, I accompany other scientists out into the field. So still, I'm still fascinated about the transition when you you know decided I'm going to try writing novels. Had you done? You said you loved writing, but had you done much? Up until that point? Well, I'd had a lifetime of jotting down ideas for for novels and stories and writing terrible poetry and keeping journals. Um, So I kind of really figured that my training ground, though, was in the science writing field, because when I did my PhD, a thesis is in some ways like a novel. Mm -hmm. And the important things I learned from doing that was how to complete a major project, how to um, edit my own work and how to accept and work positively and constructively with criticism, which has really helped me. Um, working with editors when I shifted to writing novels. But I did have to make that shift from writing the, the really sort of rigid, structured way it's that very you different. do for science, yes, into writing fiction. And, I mean, I, I think the fiction writer is is the stronger part of my personality compared to the science writer. But I did spend six months just loosening up, doing stream of consciousness writing, using, in fact, the um, the book Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. Yeah, right. 
that was really useful for me. And then crazily, after six months of that, I thought, oh, right, now I'm going to dive in. And so (laughs) (laughs) I've always been a big project person. I've not ever really been a short story person. Yeah, wow. Okay, so this book then, you've you've generally writing these days about four days a week, combining it with your um, vet work. So on those four days, how structured, I suspect I know the answer here, but um, how structured are those days and what does that structure look like and what do you aim for on each of those days or week or whatever? Well, I tried, my my children are now, I've just had one leave home, so things, I'm sorry, leave school. So things have shifted a little in that I have one that's around, though he's working at the moment. But generally, I would, as soon as my offspring leave in the morning for school, I'd do a quick whirlwind through the house, not aiming for perfection, but for tolerably neat, hang a load of washing on the line, and then my office is down the end of the house. I would sit down there, disconnect the internet, and try and go for it. So, the internet is incredibly distracting and I am as susceptible to getting caught up in social media as anyone else. So what I like to do is have another computer on down the end of the house. So if I need to check my email, I have to think twice about it to get up and walk down the other end of the house. Um, and then I usually go for it. Often I get stuck and um, at that point I'll take my little dog and go for a walk up in the bushland behind our um, our suburb, which is it's funny how that, how you get out walking and get out in some fresh air and nature and suddenly all those knots you've tied yourself Mm. in start to fall away and you can work out what you need to do to fix things Mm. but you know I'm it's it's taken me a long time between novels this time it's five years since my last novel came out and it has been quite a journey um this novel after I presented it to my publisher at Ellen and Unwin um the wonderful Jane Paul Freeman who is the one who knows I knew it wasn't working and I gave it to her and she said, yep, it's not working. And this, these are the things that you need to focus on. And so I completely rewrote the novel. But that, of course, that original material wasn't wasted. It was the foundation upon which I could start to rebuild uh, rebuild the novel and redefine the characters in a more positive light and find the heart of the novel, which is so important if you want to connect with your readers. Mm. So... Did you really disconnect the internet? I just—that's something that's such a foreign concept to me. I need to clarify that. Is do you really do that? In my office, I do not connect into the internet. But I, at the other end of the house, yeah, which is not a massive house, but I have to make a decision to stand up and walk down there because that's amazing. It's so easy to check your email and see what somebody said in response to a comment that you made or a post yes. that you put up, and mm-hmm. you know. It's easy to waste so much time that way and I haven't really got that much time. So sure. um, I try to be fairly strict with myself, yeah. So with uh, the five years between um, the, the Grass Castle, which was 2014, did you um, at any point kind of feel anxious or the pressure of getting a book out, you know? Oh, yes. What I did feel pressure about was in that interim time, my books had an amazing success in France. Mm. And that changed things in my head as well, because everyone was saying, oh, the lightkeeper's wife, the lightkeeper's wife, it's gone crazy in France, sold 100,000 copies in the first month, sold now in excess of half a million copies in France. And it's like, well, what did you do? You know, how did you do that? (laughs) 
And I even now when I look at the Orchardist order, I open it and I think, how did I put that all together? You know, it's one of those mysteries. Mm. It's a lot of hard work, obviously. But yeah, that was quite cramping and the anxiety of needing to try and get something to fruition. And it was the first time I'd understood writer's block because mm. usually, usually I can sit down and write something. But for me in the journey of this book, the real issue was working out how to unstick myself when I knew it wasn't working, but I didn't know how to fix it. And that was a form of block in itself. I just could not see the way through it. And I tried all sorts of things like writing out the different scenes on bits of paper and trying to shift them around and thinking more about the characters and it really wasn't until my publisher um you know wrapped me over the knuckles with a rod and not that I wasn't being lazy I was just so stuck you know and then she said you know start here then go there and make it more positive think about you how you want your readers to feel at the end of the novel and rebuild it and once I it's funny that I sort of collapsed in a heap um for about a month six weeks and then I'm pulled myself together and started again. And um, yeah, it came together. I think it's a much stronger book. So it was your publisher who gave you the clarity to get you unstuck. Is that correct? I think so. I think sometimes you have to descend to a certain depth of despair mm. um, in order to re, uh, recreate yourself, rebuild yourself and and find the way, the way out. And, you know, I even came to the point of saying to her, is this idea worth pursuing or should I just throw it away and start something else? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And <laughs> I kind of understand, I went to a talk by Alex Miller and he was talking about Coal Creek and how that novel came to him in the space of 10 weeks. He just bang, wrote the whole thing, six to 10 weeks. Mm. And he said though at this talk that whether it takes 10 weeks or 10 years, there is just the work that needs to be done. And I found that really reassuring and really calming because it you know, great writers, greater writers than me have had difficult experiences as well, as well and worked mm. through them. And I think, you know, sometimes that is the journey towards actually nailing it with a book is to do that hard work. Um, and sometimes, I don't know what the final answer is, but little bits of distance, you know, setting it aside and coming back to it, that does help as well. Suddenly the warts all appear in your previously perfect manuscript. <laughs> so until you got that... Um clarity from your publisher and after you got over falling in a heap and did you um because obviously it was a challenge and you were stuck did you at any point in that period even after three very successful books one ridiculously successful um but three very successful books uh did you at any point kind of go do I can I do it yep I definitely did. And in fact, before I wrote this this novel, after The Grass Castle, I got 300 pages into another novel. And then I just got to a point where I thought, it's not working. I don't know what to do. So it's funny. It was just a point I had to come to in my career. And I thought to myself, I'm done. I actually don't have another book in me. I don't no. have another novel. I you did. really thought that. I did. And it was incredibly liberating. And I slept oh. well for the first time in oh. weeks and months. And you know what, how long that lasted? Like oh. about two, two or three nights. And then I woke up and I thought, oh, I have to go back and take Leon's story. And now I remember oh. what I wanted to do with that homeschooling thing. And I started again. So now I'm going to gather the courage to go back to that other novel and see if I can fix it. Wow. Good on you for, yeah, going back to it. Now, when you first started writing, 
Um, did you ever think you would spend 42 weeks on the French national bestseller list? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, that was just a phenomenal, out of the blue, uh, unexpected experience. And, and, you know, I think you do have to have a good book, obviously, that, that somebody takes up. But there's obviously an element of luck and good fortune as well and just the right person finding your book at the right time. And there was a publisher in France in a small publishing house that came across The Lightkeeper's Wife, which the French actually renamed The Memory of Ocean Spray okay. and, and put a non-gender specific, you know, just a silhouette of a lighthouse on the cover. And, and they really got behind the novel and this uh, quirky French um, book commentator, who's also a bookseller, went on French TV saying, this is one of the 10, top 10 books of the year. And it just went boom, went gangbusters. <laughs> and, you know, that's what everyone dreams of. Yes. Uh, but it just still seems surreal. Like I still feel like, you know, earthy, normal me who sits in my office with my blankie around my legs and my thermals on in winter and, and struggles away with writing. <laughs> so when that went crazy and, you know, sold 100,000 copies in the first month, did you have a – did you at any point sit there and try and analyse what was the winning formula? How can I repeat that formula in the next one? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think my publishers did that too, but I think that's <laughs> the wrong the wrong way to go about writing another book because yes. I think that if you try to recreate what arose spontaneously in another work, that mm. you're just going to fail at it. Um, and so I think, you know, what I've had to do is is go with what's in my heart and what's right, what's true to me and my love of nature and my love of Australian landscapes and my fascination with human relations, the baggage that we inherit from history or from our families and how that shapes us and takes us into the future. Those sorts of things are what are my strengths and writing dialogue and nature and mm. then um, hope that I can find a, you know, find a narrative, that the narrative finds me and that my characters take me there. Speaking of writing dialogue, um, what do you do to make sure, what, what sort of are some of the steps or techniques that you employ to make sure that dialogue is 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 really authentic to that particular character because, you know, I've read quite a number of manuscripts in my time and the story and plot can be really quite good, but I don't believe the dialogue. So what do you, what are some of the tips that you can share with the writers on writing dialogue that works? Um, okay, that's a good question. So initially I overwrite, definitely overwrite with far too many words in my dialogue and I try to sort of he hear the conversation as I go, but I'm a bit of an overwriter. But then, you know, that comes the pairing back and the, the making things crisp and reading aloud really helps too and making sure that you have the voice of that character um, have that voice, that character nailed as best you can. I mean, I think that's, for me, that's really important. And I think I've done that best in The Orchardist Daughter um, of all, all my novels is getting the individual voices clearer and mm. um, getting the, the language of the novel, in fact, clearer. Um, so, yeah, reading aloud helps pairing back, pairing back. I think it's if it's short, clear, crisp, clear dialogue, that really helps as well. And I don't try to um, describe you know, exactly what the character's doing all the time as they speak, you know, that's a bit, can get a bit mundane. I like to make it clear who's speaking next, but mm. sometimes just a he, he said or she said, or, 
a small action can help to carry carry that dialogue through or a facial expression, I guess. Mm. don't know if that's, that's really very clear, but um, I like doing dialogue and I seem to hear it fairly clearly in my head, but I think that's part of knowing your characters quite well and, yes. and hearing, the, hearing their voices. Mm-hmm. Um, what, dare I ask, are you working on now? Well, it's been quite a hectic month um, just doing the promotions and the publicity for The Orchardist Daughter. Um, But I have just started to contemplate what I'll do next. And I have about four ideas lined up, a couple of which are partly written. And so I'm trying to decide whether to go back to one of of those, like the one I said I was 300 Mm. pages in and whether to start that again. And I I wasn't happy with a couple of the characters, so I need to think them through a bit more. But it's a good good premise, so I might go with that, but I can't talk about it. That's all right. (laughs) So maybe you can tell us what fills you with more um, excitement or anticipation or, you know, um, happiness, the idea of going back to something that you have already started at, uh, to some level or starting with a fresh, clean slate? Something new is always more exciting, always. <laughs> and that first draft, once you get rid of your inner editor and yeah. allow your creator to take over and just go with it and forget about the cliches and forget about the overwriting and the horrible the horrible language that you dump onto the paper, that's always exciting. But eventually you're going to have to come back and do the work. And so, you know, I will, I think I'm starting to mature a little um, in my understanding of the work required. So I think I'll go back to this one set in the Kimberley, which is a wonderful landscape that I love as well. Um, I'll go back to that one and see if I can start to nut through how to re-thread it and and um, rebuild it, I I guess. Mm -mm. And finally, what's your top three writing tips for, or, you know, top three bits of advice for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position where you are one day? I'd say get it down and then get it right. And I've learned that from my scientist husband who's written 700 scientific papers and 47 books and he's amazingly productive. Um, Well, yeah, he gets it down and then you've got something to work with and and that's – everyone has a different way of doing it but that does – work for me as well. Um, Learn to work with editors because even Mm. if you don't agree with everything that they say, they have some distance from your work and can cast different eyes on it and see what is and isn't working and advise you on that. And the other thing is to write what you love because Mm. for me, you're going to be with that idea for three to five years or longer you know things germinate even further back for me often about 10 years before something comes out Mm. write what you love because then you are going to be able to write from the heart and write what is true for you and that will bring the, the writing to life wonderful and on that note thank you so much for your time today karen thank you valerie it's been lovely to chat This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing.
There you go, Karen Vigas. Well, it's really interesting. And, you know, I really love the fact that she's still working one day a week. Yes. As yes. a vet. I mean, she, lo- oh, she loves it. Mm. She gets a lot out of it. And I look at that's something that we talk about all the time because, you know, there's that notion that, you, you know, you're not a successful writer if you've still got a day job. Mm. Whereas I personally think that having a day job actually, I mean, you know, I mean, she's only doing one day a week, but it Mm. feeds into your writing because it gets you out of your own head and it gets you out into the world. You're meeting people all the time. You're doing, you know, different things. And I think that that's actually a really useful thing. You can get way too isolated as a writer if you only write. Yeah. Yeah. And if you live in an isolated area and you don't like have cafes nearby where you can talk to people for sure yeah yeah I think definitely it's, it's very definitely. important to to yeah. get out yes. all right so what are you doing in the coming week Al oh that's a good question what am I doing well do you know what I'm doing I'm actually editing at the moment so um you know I talked earlier about the three manuscripts that I wrote last year well I'm still like it's they, it, they've been an interesting process for me because you know, generally speaking, I'm, you know, I write my draft, I edit, I'm, I'm all over it. But these projects have been a little bit more, they're taking me a little bit more time. I'm actually working, I'm going back and I'm reworking and I'm doing different things with them because I'm, I'm just trying to, I guess I'm at that point with my whole, you know, uh, writing career where I want the next thing I do to be the next level. Like I, mm, you know, I've, cool. I've done six books now and mm. I really want to keep improving and, and keep getting better. So um, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm trying, they're all quite different. The three manuscripts that I'm working on are all quite different mm. and I'm doing them, obviously I'm not doing them all at once cause I, that would just do my head in. Um, but I am sort of like, I'm rotating them and I'm sort of going back. So I've, I'm probably doing more drafts on these particular manuscripts mm. than I have really done in the past. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, like, I, it'd be interesting to see what that does, like what, how changing that process for yeah. me, how that works. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's proving quite interesting. I had some beta readers read the one I'm working on at the moment. Um, I had some beta readers read that and that's been really invaluable. So I've been, um, um, and when I say beta readers, I think I talked about this a few episodes ago. Mm. So, I, um, uh, book boy who's 15 and, um, also Jazzy from Jazzy's bookshelf, you know, both incredibly widely read kids, um, both interested in the sort of manuscript that I've written and both of them, um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm considering putting them into a group and marketing them because I'm calling them the A-team of beta readers because they're really mm. thoughtful. So they've both mm. come back to me with really thoughtful and quite insightful um, feedback, which you, do, you often don't even get from adult beta readers. Like it's been, mm. <laughs> it's been quite interesting. And it has made me one of the both of them have made a similar comment about one of my characters and it just made me realize that the I, I needed to put some more thought into the development of that character which then of course changes you know yeah. some of the aspects of the plot and um it'll come raving but that's basically what I'm doing <laughs> and so it's well you know like it's it's an interesting process because it's um it's she's a this particular character she's a girl is a much more complex character than I've ever really tried to to create before so mm-hmm. I'm willing to sit with the complexity for a little while to try and because I I want her to be I want her to be what I want her to be if you know what I mean I want her to to reach the vision that I have for her and so therefore I need to you know it takes the work I've got to put the work in and that's what I'm doing so that, I'm putting that, the work in you're going to be busy well yeah I'm doing a lot of wandering about with the dog 
talking out loud to myself. <laughs> if that's what busy is, if that's what that looks like, that's what I'm doing. And the, the, the dog is so – Procrastia probably is so fantastic because I'll be chatting away to myself about this thing. And out loud? Like, yeah, yeah, sometimes because I sometimes I don't even realise I'm doing it. Like I, I'm, I've got this thing, I'll be like, oh, right, yeah, that's it. And he, he basically like he, he's like his little ears cock up and he looks at me and it's kind so of nods cute. and I know it's hilarious. But anyway, people think I'm quite mad, but that's okay. Yeah. I'm all good. What about you? What will you be doing this week? <gasps> oh, my God. Um, oh, really? Hopefully I won't be talking to myself. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be well, – that's right. I forgot to mention, I'm going to be really busy this coming week because I have an art exhibition on. What? Oh, my goodness. You forgot yes. to mention it. <laughs> I forgot to mention. No, and in You're fact. You're having an exhibition. Well, I am in a group exhibition. So a friend of mine, Felicity, uh, decided to organise a group exhibition. And, it's, and, of course, I couldn't say no because it's called Her Story. So, of course, I had to say yes. Because she, it's all about, um, you know, female empowerment and um, that's not the theme of the artworks, but that's just Felicity's passion is to empower female artists because they are under, underrepresented in museums and galleries. And so she decided to call this exhibition Her Story and she's curating it and she asked me to be in it. So I'm in a group exhibition. It's not my solo exhibition in any way, but shape still, or form. still, how exciting. So that is exciting, but the reason why it might impact this group and our listeners, well, for those of you who are in Sydney, I mean, of course, you're all invited to come to the exhibition if you like and come for Bubbles on opening night, which is on Thursday the 28th of March at 6pm in Balmain, and I'll put uh, the information in the podcast community on Facebook. But the reason why it might impact our listeners, I've completely forgot to mention, is that I'm going to be in the gallery on certain days, and I think it's the Wednesday. Again, I'll put this in the Facebook group. So anyone who wants to come for a half-hour one-on-one chat about creativity, you can ask me anything, essentially. Yeah, you can book in. It's free. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm not doing People, it by Skype. This you have is to an amazing opportunity. <laughs> you have to go and see her. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's going to be fun because then I'll get to spend time to some listeners one-on-one and also ho- hopefully help with some advice. And, um, yeah, it's going to be good. Anyway, I'll put all of that in the Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community if you're not already in there. All right, so where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You will find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. Oh, and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And I'm also in the Your Kids Next Read Facebook community. So yeah. come join me there if you um, are either writing for children and young adult or you have some in your life and you'd like some new books for them. And you, Val, where do we find you? (laughs) You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 